The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. But we'll begin uh, this evening reading uh, actually back in Luke chapter 1, verse 57, and we'll read through uh, to Luke chapter 2, verse 5. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open, and his tongue loosened, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them lay them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of the salvation or of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the, in the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and lay him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. This is the word of God. You may be seated.
Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing upon our time together this evening. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to this portion of your word, we do pray that you would guide and direct us this evening, that you would bless the meditations of our hearts, the words of my mouth, and that you indeed, as we have already asked, would show us the glory and the grace of our Savior here in the prophecy of Zechariah. We pray this for the sake of your glory and for the good of your people. And in Jesus' name, amen. The song of Zechariah, or Zechariah's prophecy, that comes, as you see, right on the heels of another song, another prophetic outburst, another doxological outburst. Indeed, one author writes about this section of the Gospel of Luke, that it's defined, as it were, by these two doxological discourses, or even, he says, a duet of doxology to the Lord God of Israel uh, for the goodness that he is showing towards his people. And there is a great deal of similarity in some ways between uh, Mary's song, the Magnificat, and Zechariah's prophecy, the Benedictus, as it's been known throughout church history. Uh, But there are some unique features to Zechariah's prophecy. If you read through Zechariah's prophecy, you notice immediately that it's very easy to divide the prophecy almost in half, starting at verse 36. You see, Zechariah's prophecy, the first portion, focuses really upon the promise of God to redeem his people in the Old Covenant. And in a very real sense, we could say that it's summarized this way, Blessed be the Lord for redemption promised. And as we get to verse 76 and following, uh, the song turns, the prophecy turns, and the focus becomes not the promise of redemption in the Old Covenant, but rather the imminent preparations which are being made for the coming of the Redeemer in the person and in the work of John the Baptist. We could uh, summarize it this way. Blessed be the Lord for redemption prepared. These two key themes really define all of the prophecy. The promise of redemption and the preparation of redemption. And I was meditating upon that this week, that relationship that exists between promise and preparation. And my mind was drawn to a rather mundane thing, though a splendid thing, that we all have experience with. And that's a wedding ceremony. If you think about it for a moment... When does a wedding really begin? Well, there's a very real sense in which the wedding doesn't begin at the ceremony. It it doesn't even begin whenever you pick out your color palette, as important as that might be. Find uh, the right venue, the right church, the right guest list. It begins with a promise. It begins with a promise of a man to a woman that he will marry her. And from that moment... When the engagement begins and the promise has been made, there begins a series of escalating preparations to the moment upon which the reality of that promise comes into existence at the wedding ceremony. And if we think about it that way, we could position ourselves here as we read Zechariah's prophecy in the position of a bridegroom who stands, as it were, maybe right around here somewhere, 
and looks with anticipation at that door back there for his bride to enter into the room and to gaze upon the glorious entry of that one whom he has so desired to marry. And as he looks back at that door, he sees a glimmer of light beginning to enter in through the door as it is just about to swing open and that bride is just about to be revealed. You see, we are right on the precipice of seeing the entrance into the world of the Savior as we come to the prophecy of Zechariah. And appropriately so then, this song, this prophecy is full of praise. You can almost feel the exuberant doxological feelings, the feelings of praise, the feelings of glory, the feelings of blessing that Zechariah has as he anticipates the imminent arrival of what not only he but all the nation of Israel has been waiting for for millennium. That's what makes this song so glorious. And so wonderful for us to consider, even especially at this time of the year, when we consider that most wonderful act of God's redemption, when the eternal Son of God entered into our world, took upon himself our flesh, and we see the culmination of God's plan of redemption. That's where we are. We're right on the precipice of glory here in the Song of Zechariah. And thus, it is a wonderful song for us to meditate upon this evening and for us to study. Because as Zechariah considers the redemption that has been promised in the Old Covenant, as he considers the the preparation for that redemption which is imminent and the arrival of his own son, John the Baptist, what we learn is we learn about the Savior. And we learn about his glory. We learn about his person. And we learn about his work. And thus, this evening, as we study this song, we can say together, as it were, with Zechariah, blessed be the Lord for the redemption which he has brought in his son, that he promised in the Old Testament, and which he is preparing by the ministry of John the Baptist. Let's then begin to consider uh, this text verse 67. As we begin to look at this text, we actually have to step back for a moment, though, and consider the context. I was tempted, and maybe I would have done it if I wouldn't have read for so long last week. I was tempted to start our sermon reading all the way back in Luke chapter 1, verse 5, because that's really the information you need to understand what's taking place before us. Uh, Let me just quickly refresh your memory as to the story of Zechariah. Remember, Zechariah is a priest. He comes from a priestly lineage, and he is uh, chosen by lot, we learn at the beginning of Luke's gospel, to minister before the Lord, to minister in the holy place before the altar of incense. And as Zechariah is in the temple, burning incense to the Lord and ministering, doing his priestly duties in the temple, he encounters an angel. He encounters the angel Gabriel, actually. And as he encounters this angel, the angel Gabriel delivers to him blessed news. He tells him this. He he says that you will have joy and gladness, 
And many will rejoice with you at the birth, he says, of his son. For he will be great before the Lord. And he will not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. You see, Zechariah is in the temple and the angel comes to him and he tells him that you're going to have a son. You're going to have a son, but he's not just going to be a son that you'll be proud to have. He's not just going to be a son that will be an answer uh, to the prayers of you and your wife Elizabeth, which you've been praying for these many years, even though now you are in old age and perhaps they had given up at this point the possibility of having a son. He won't just be a son for them who will be a blessing for them. But this child will be a blessing to all the nation of Israel, all of God's people. And in this context, in this conversation, where Zechariah and the angel are speaking, Zechariah responds to the angel. And he says, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. You can think for a moment of all of the examples in the Old Testament of women who were advanced in years, who thought it was impossible for them to give birth, and yet who the Lord blessed with children. But nevertheless, Zechariah, not his best moment perhaps, questions the angel. And the angel tells him that you will not speak until the things that he has prophesied come to pass. And he says that because you did not believe my words. You see, when we get to our sermon text this evening, what we see are the first words, it appears, that Zechariah speaks after having been struck mute for how long we're not sure. It seems more than nine months, but you can imagine how remarkable it must have been to have seen a man who has been mute and also perhaps deaf. You note when they come to him, they have to write on a, on, a, on a board the name of the son. They don't just ask him verbally. So perhaps he wasn't just mute, he was also deaf. And he lived in this condition for some time. And now, remarkably, at the birth of his son and at, John, or at Zachariah's confirmation that his name will be John, note that's what the angel told him, as he acts in obedience to what the Lord has prophesied, the Lord opens his mouth and he begins to prophesy. Now, why do I set the context in such an extensive way? Well, I do so because I think it's very important for us to see the significance of this moment. This is a man, a man who has just been disciplined, really, by the Lord. You realize this has happened, right? That's why the angel tells him that he's going to be mute, because he didn't believe him. He's been disciplined by the Lord. For many months, he has remained mute. He's remained deaf, perhaps. And now, as he turns, as it were, in obedience to the Lord, the Lord opens his mouth, and the first words out of his mouth are this glorious prophecy. And I think it's at this point, really, friends, that we encounter the first application that this text has for us this evening. 
And the application is simply this, that even though the Lord disciplined Zechariah, he still used him. You notice that. You see, he didn't discipline Zechariah forever. He didn't cast him off. Even though this is a broken man, this is a man who doubted. This is a man who should have known better. He was a priest. Surely he was familiar with the Old Covenant Scriptures, and yet he failed to believe the Lord when he sent his own angelic messenger to confront him face to face. And the Lord disciplined him for that. And yet even after that, we see the grace and the mercy of God towards this man that he allows him to be a mouthpiece for his revelation. Friends, that's remarkable. And we shouldn't just skim over that. I especially want to encourage any of you here this evening, perhaps you feel that the Lord has chastened you. You perhaps have undergone church discipline before even. And perhaps you labor under the illusion that because that is the case, the Lord can't use you. Well, friends, Zechariah testifies to the reality that just because God has disciplined you does not mean that the Lord is done with you. I think that's a significant thing for us to see right off the bat. But let's actually get into the meat of Zechariah's prophecy at this point. He's filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesies. And what does he say? Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, he says, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And right off the bat, we see in verse 68 some things which I hope are familiar to us from our study of the book of Exodus. If you remember from back in Exodus chapter 4, verse 31, and other places in the book of Exodus, actually, we hear that language of God's visitation towards his people. We see it again, for instance, in the book of Ruth. It's the language... That visitation language is the language of God coming and showing his blessing to his people, his presence to his people. He has come to his people, and he's come to his people in this context to visit and to redeem them, it says. This visitation language comes uh, with a certain uh, baggage. It comes with echoes from the Old Covenant. It is the language of both salvation and judgment. And that, of course, becomes clear as we read the rest of the prophecy. He has come to visit and to redeem his people. Verse 69 tells us how he is coming to visit and redeem his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. And this is a, a verse that might be a little difficult for us to conceptualize as modern people. We don't usually interact with horned animals. Uh, but the idea that's being expressed here is this. It's the idea of a horn on an animal which, is, uh, which enables that animal to concentrate all its strength, as it were, in one particular place. You could think, for instance, of a rhinoceros. All the might of that giant animal becomes focused when it charges something with its horn in one particular point, and that makes that horn a devastating enemy to the enemy, or a devastating weapon for the enemy of a rhinoceros. And the idea that's being expressed here is that in this person in this horn of salvation which is being raised up in the house of David all of God's power to redeem and to save his people is being concentrated it's being concentrated in one particular place 
this powerful horn of salvation. It's one person, but it's a person who, as the text continues, is from the house of his servant David. You see, here we begin to see that God is being faithful to his covenant promises, isn't he? You see, up to this point, uh, we've seen Zechariah praising God for the uh, arrival of redemption. But here, we we could perhaps see this section from verses uh, 69 to 71, is Zechariah praising God specifically for the arrival of his promised blessing in the context of the Davidic covenant. You know what he does here? He zeroes in on the promises that God made to David. He's raising up a horn of salvation from the house of his servant David. We just read those words from Psalm 132. And you note there the title is apt, Lord God remember David. It is a plea from the psalmist for the Lord to remember the covenant that he made with his servant David. It is a plea on the part of the psalmist for the Lord to reestablish the Davidic covenant and to fulfill his promise that there would be a son upon that throne for all eternity. And we see here in Zechariah's prophecy that the arrival of the fulfillment of that promise is imminent. It's imminent. Verse 70 says, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old, we could think here of many, many texts in the Old, in the old Testament. We could think, for instance, of Isaiah chapter 11. We read there of that shoot that springs forth from the stump of Jesse, one who would arise out of that Davidic lineage and who would be used for the salvation of God's people and the judgments of their enemies. You see, what is about to take place, according to Zechariah, is God is about to fulfill all of those promises which he made about great David's greater son, who will come to save his people. And of course, there are some obvious things we should note here. The implication is that the one who is coming is a king. He is a king. We know that this is uh, just absolutely central to the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the king who ushers in God's kingdom in a unique way. He is a king. He's a Davidic king. And then verse 71 expresses, uh, as we continue to work through the verse, uh, the purpose again for this sending of the king is that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hands of those who hate us. It's significant here that the language of Zechariah's prophecy is the language of liberation from one's enemies. Again, we've seen echoes already of the language of the Exodus present here in this text. And we can see another similarity here. What is this horn of salvation going to do? Well, he's going to bring about the liberation of God's people from their enemies. He's going to deliver them, as it were, from the hand of their enemies. The text continues, though. Verse 72 says, To show mercy 
to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered, here we hear that language again, from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. There's a shift here, isn't there? There's a shift from focus upon the fulfillment of the Davidic promises uh, to the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises. We see that the text tells us that that the purpose of him coming is so that he might show the mercy promised to our fathers and, and to remember his holy covenants, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. We can think for a moment of what this means. Well, what does it mean to, to show the mercy that was promised to our fathers? Well, this song must have been good news to the people of Israel as they suffered under Roman oppression. After all these hundreds of years of constantly being enslaved, in bondage, oppressed by various enemies, having been brought into Exile many, many times because of their disobedience to the Lord. It's, it's a good reminder for us here that if it was up to the people of Israel, and indeed if it was up to us, we would be lost. But the Lord has persevered these people, and he's done so because of his mercy. And now he is about to show the mercy that he promised to their fathers. We could think perhaps of Genesis chapter 15 for a moment. That wonderful moment when the Lord puts Abraham into a deep sleep and he enters into this unusual covenant-making ceremony with him. And you'll remember in that ceremony that Abraham never walks through the severed animals, does he? You see, the Lord God swears an oath to Abraham. He makes a covenant with Abraham there. He makes a covenant that he will bless Abraham. He will bless his descendants. And the conditions of that covenant fall squarely upon the shoulders of the Lord God of Israel. You see, he takes upon himself the curses, as it were. He says to his people, let Me, as it were, be destroyed if I do not fulfill my promise to bless this people. And the most marvelous illustration of this, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is that moment when the Savior hangs upon the cross for the sins of his people. That moment when the Lord God takes upon himself the condemnation of us all to show mercy to us who have failed him in so many ways. This one will be one who will show the mercy promised to our fathers. Again, we see something similar to the Exodus here. And to remember his holy covenants the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Remember, uh, the, uh, the Exodus account hinges really upon God's remembrance of his covenant with Abraham, does it not? 
Over and over again, we see there that God remembers his covenant with Abraham and he redeems his people. And so here, we see again that the Lord remembers his promises to Abraham. And as he remembers his promises to Abraham, as he remembers that he has promised Abraham uh, that his people will not be slaves, but that they instead will possess the gates of their enemies. Paul later interpret that text to mean that Abraham's descendants will be the heirs of the whole world. As he remembers that in Abraham, every family of the earth will be blessed. The Lord acts. He acts and he sends his son. He sends his son to confirm, to fulfill the oath that he has sworn. Of course, this language here of redemption, of deliverance, of salvation is beautiful. And it points out to us, of course, God's goodness to us. But it also points out to us God's faithfulness. Now, we've seen that, of course, throughout the book of Exodus. We saw it last week. And here, though, is the chief expression of it. You see, it's in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that we see in a definitive way that the Lord God keeps his word. It is in the Lord Jesus Christ that all the promises of God are yes and amen. It is in this event which Zechariah is prophesying about that we see that God is faithful. No matter how long it takes, no, no, matter, how un, uh, uh, no, no matter how it looks to the contrary, uh, the Lord will be faithful to his word. It's particularly interesting if you think about the context here. At the very beginning of the New Testament, the Lord has been silent for 400 years or so at this point. He hasn't been bringing any revelation. He hasn't been sending prophets. He's been silent. You can imagine the people of Israel might perhaps have began to consider maybe the Lord has abandoned us. But here, here he shows up and he proves that he is trustworthy. But as the text continues, it tells us here that he has delivered us from the hands of our enemies, that we might serve him, and that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. All of these glorious things that we've been considering, how God is fulfilling his covenant, how he's keeping his promises, how he's proving himself faithful, how he's remembering the promises that he's made in the past. These are, these are all great things to reflect upon, and they're chief really here in this text, because it shows us the mercy and the grace of our God. But here we also read of the purpose of God's salvation. You see, God did not save his people. He didn't redeem them. He didn't deliver them from the hands of his enemies so that they can live their best life now. He didn't deliver his people so that they can sit on a beach somewhere and enjoy their retirement carefree. He redeemed his people. He delivered his people. 
so that they would serve him. Again, we can hear an echo of the Exodus here. Remember, the Lord tells Pharaoh, let my people go so that they can serve me. Redemption always has an end. And the end of redemption is always service to the Lord. Friends, this is what we have been saved for. As I was considering this text this week, I've been reading a a book in preparation for a class I'm taking on pastoral ministry. And one of the pieces of advice that uh, the man gives in this book is that when you're preparing a sermon, you should turn all the applications inward. That's a little bit of a painful exercise. But as I was preparing the sermon, I was considering this text, and I was considering the reality, and it, it is an important reality, that we have been saved for service. And, and I had to ask myself, and I invite you to ask yourself, you know, are we living like that? Are we living in light of the reality that the Lord God has saved us, has delivered us, has redeemed us, for his service. Are we giving him everything we can give him? Consider what he's done for you. Consider what you're doing for him. If you're like me, that's a sobering thing to contemplate. And I would suspect that many of us could do with a little more contemplation of it. Because quite frankly, we can all do more. We can all do more especially in light of what the Lord has done for us. We've been saved to serve. Well, that brings us then to verse 76. In verse 76, the song, the prophecy, it takes a slightly different turn, as we noted already. Up to this point, uh, Zechariah has been praising the Lord for all of the glorious fulfillments that are about to occur in the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the Old Testament prophecies and covenants. But at verse 76, the, the prophecy turns and it begins to focus upon uh, the, the blessing of the Lord, or it begins to, Zechariah rather, it begins to turn his focus upon blessing the Lord, uh, not for redemption promised in the Old Covenant, uh, but for redemption prepared in the ministry of John the Baptist. You see here in verse 76, he begins, And you, child, will be called the prophets of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give the knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Paul's there for a moment. You see that this child which has been born to him, this child which has been named John, has been sent by God to be a prophet. In particular, he's been sent to be a prophet of the Lord Most High who does one particular activity. It's chief amongst everything he does. He is one who has come to prepare. He's come to prepare the way of the Lord. He has come to prepare the way of the Lord by giving knowledge of salvation to his people. Now what does this mean? What does it mean? Well, it's remarkable how... Almost every portion of this prophecy reflects some portion of the Old Testament, much like the Magnificat. Here, uh, Zechariah is using the language of Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verses 3 through 5 here, which prophesied of one who would come to prepare the way for Yahweh. 
One who would come to prepare the way for the entrance of the Lord into the midst of his people. And it's interesting that here as he tells us about the office that his son will occupy, I believe he also tells us something about the one whom he is preparing the way for. And that is that he is the Lord. He's the Lord. You note that. That's a remarkable statement. The implication here being that the one whom follows John, the one to whom John points, the one to whom John prepares the people to receive is not only a prophet, but he is Yahweh himself. It's not made as clear in the Gospel of Luke, but if you were, for instance, to study the use of this text in the Gospel of Mark, you would see very clearly what's going on here. And it's a remarkable statement that's being made. He tells us something about the one who follows here, doesn't he? But you notice also what John is meant to be doing. He's to give the knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Now you note there's a subtle change here in the, in the tenor of the prophecy at this point. In the first portion of the prophecy, Zechariah has been using all the language of the Old Covenant to explain redemption. He's been using the language of political oppression, really, hasn't he? He's been seeking about deliverance from the enemies of the Lord in the sense that we would see in the Old Covenant. Deliverance from the Egyptians, deliverance from the Babylonians, from the Persians, whoever it might be. But now we see that part of the role of John the Baptist is to give the knowledge of salvation to God's people. And and the knowledge of salvation here is in the forgiveness of their sins. You note that there's a shift from speaking about those external enemies of God's people to speaking about that chief enemy of God's people. You see, sin is the true nemesis of God's people. Political oppression is bad. It's bad. It's particularly bad when it's persecution directed at God's church. But political persecution is not the chief problem that mankind has. The chief problem that mankind has is that we are sinners. And John comes to prepare the people of God in the knowledge of salvation, for what true salvation will actually look like. It will look like salvation from their sins. That fits, of course, with what we know of the ministry of John the Baptist. What does John the Baptist do? Well, he baptizes, he preaches, and he preaches repentance from sins. He baptizes with a baptism of repentance. He is one who points the people to their sins. He points them to the problem of their sins. And ultimately, he points them to the solution for their sins. As he points to the Savior. As he points to the Savior. You see, the great need of the people was that they would have salvation not from others, but from their own sinfulness. Sin is here seen for what it is. It's a a master crueler than any Roman empire. It's It's an oppressor worse than any pharaoh. And it's an enemy deadlier than any other. It's the true problem. And what John testifies to in his ministry 
is that the solution to the problem which lays at the root of all other problems has arrived. It has arrived. He comes to prepare the people with knowledge of salvation. And in here, verse 78, we see this language of because. Because of the tender mercy of our God. Now, mercy has been mentioned already in this song, in this prophecy, but it's important for you to realize here that the name John actually means the Lord is merciful or the Lord is gracious. The names, as I think was pointed out by Pastor Holst this morning, are very significant in this portion of Luke's gospel. Zechariah's name means the Lord remembers. Elizabeth's name means the Lord is faithful. And John's name means the Lord is merciful. And you see that that's exactly what he comes to teach, isn't it? He comes to show, he comes to demonstrate the mercy of our God. Whereby, and then he uses this beautiful language to describe the Messiah, the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet to the way of peace. You see, he is preparing the people to receive the sunrise. He is preparing the people to to see the end, as it were, of the darkness of night. Again, here we have a wonderful illustration of the points which Zechariah occupies in redemptive history, don't we? We can almost visualize, can't we, that darkest period of the night, as it were, before the sun begins to crest over the horizon and the world is illuminated by the radiant light of the sun. John comes to prepare the people of God to receive that light. This language is used about the Savior in multiple places. I I couldn't help but think about John chapter 1 here. If you remember there, John chapter 1, it paints this picture for us of people who are languishing, as it were, much as these are, in darkness. And it says there that the Lord is the light. It says the darkness will not overcome him. The light and the life of God's people is cresting here. And the Lord Jesus Christ. I have another allusion here to the, to the book of Isaiah. Actually an allusion to which Pastor Hulse mentioned earlier today as he talked about Isaiah chapter 9 and that language there of the Galilee of the Gentiles. You can hear that same language of Isaiah chapter 9 here. The light is coming and it's coming to do what? It's coming to shine upon those who sit in darkness. If we were to go back and look at that text in Isaiah, as Pastor Hulse mentioned this morning, it's not just the people of God, the covenant people of God, Israel, who are sitting in darkness. This is specifically language that seems to be used to focus upon the reality that the Savior won't just save the Jewish people, but he'll save the nations. Even those who sit in darkness will see this light. And this light will guide our feet to the way of peace. This is the language of salvation. It's the language 
of one who will show us the way, the way to peace with God. This is what John comes to do. He comes to prepare us. He comes to prepare them, rather, for the imminent arrival of the Messiah. As we reflect upon what John comes to do and who he comes to prepare the way for, I think that we must, with Zechariah, be filled with praise for the Lord God Almighty. You see, what we hear here is really the best news that we could ever hear. It's the news that that one who is able to deal with the greatest problem of humanity is coming. And what's glorious for us this day is that we aren't those who sit, as it were, even in the privileged place of Zechariah, who had this wonderful position to look upon the imminent arrival of the Savior, but rather we are those who can look upon him fully, as it were. We see him, as it were, not from a distance, even a very short distance, the way Zechariah did, but rather we can look upon him in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we can see the fullness of God's salvation. We can see the completeness of his salvation. We can see all the glory of God's goodness and his mercy towards us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, I don't know about you, but that ought to encourage our hearts. We ought to be with Zechariah praising the Lord for redemption promised. We ought to be praising the Lord for the redemption that he's prepared. But most of all, we ought to be praising the Lord this evening for redemption accomplished. Friends, it is a glorious thing to occupy the privileged position upon which we sit. And we look, as it were, upon the Lord Jesus, upon his person, and upon his work, and upon his grace, and upon his glory. Friends, we have a privileged place in the history of redemption. And I hope this evening that we can say, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has indeed visited and redeemed his people. Amen.